Hello, my name is Keith Stanglin, and I teach historical theology at Lipscomb University, Austin Center, formerly Austin Graduate School of Theology. And it is my privilege to be bringing this lesson on reading the Bible with the ancient church. Um, I'll just read the summary that I gave for this program, uh, which was originally scheduled for the lectures in, in 2020. This class session will explore how ancient Christians interpreted Scripture theologically and what we can learn from them. Readers of Scripture before the year 1500 generally approached Scripture in a different way than readers after 1800. Early Christians took Jesus and Paul and others as models for how to read Scripture, but modern believers have often been trained to avoid such approaches. For pre-modern interpreters, everything in Scripture, even in the Old Testament, points to Christ. In modern times, especially among scholars, Christian and non-Christian alike, the Bible became more of a dead letter than a living word. What are those different approaches, and what can we learn from each? So this session is based on my book, The Letter and Spirit of Biblical Interpretation, From the Early Church to Modern Practice, a book that was published by Baker Academic back in 2018. So first, just uh, to give a little bit of a summary of that book, um, there is, it's mainly a historical point being made, uh, points being made, but also a couple of chapters at the end that I would call theological or prescriptive point. So first, the book is a short history of biblical interpretation. So beginning with the second century, early Greek-speaking church fathers, the book then moves to the Latin-speaking medieval West, and then to early modern Protestants, and then to the Enlightenment and modern eras. It's a survey, a bird's-eye view, but in the midst of the survey, it then zooms in on some particular figures to illustrate the broader principles of biblical interpretation that are common to each period. Readers of Scripture before 1500 generally approached Scripture in a different way than readers, let's say, after 1800. So again, what are those differences and how did that transition, that, that gradual transition occur is what the main part of that book is about. And then second, as I said, is sort of asking the question, how can we let the best of both pre-modern and modern approaches to biblical interpretation inform our own um, exercise in biblical interpretation. So that's what the book is about. Um, I want to speak uh, in, in this session simply about reading the Bible with the church, or I might even, I thought about titling this, Reading the Bible Like Paul. So let's just jump right into it. Some people find it difficult to read the Bible with the ancient church. And as a typical example of pre-modern biblical interpretation, consider with me Augustine's famous interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So you know the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10, um, and all the, probably some of the details of that story. If you don't remember it, um, look it up around verse 30 and following of Luke chapter 10. And here's Augustine's interpretation uh, from his book, Questions on the Gospels. So first he quotes um, the, the verses from Luke 
10, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And here's what Augustine says about the parable. He is understood, that man, he is is understood to be Adam himself, representing the human race. Jerusalem is that city of peace from whose blessedness he fell. Jericho is translated as moon and signifies our mortality because it begins, increases, grows old, and sets. The robbers are the devil and his angels who stripped him of immortality and having beat with blows by persuading him to sinfulness, left him half alive because the man was alive in the part by which he could understand and know God, and he was dead in the part in which he was wasting away and weighed down by sins. And for this reason, he is said to be half alive. That's what the text says, Luke 10, uh, verse 30, half alive. But the priest and the Levite who saw him and passed by signified the priesthood and ministry of the Old Testament, which could not be of benefit toward salvation. Samaritan is translated as guardian, and for this reason the Lord himself is signified by this name. The binding of the wounds is the holding of sins in check. The oil is the consolation of good hope because of the forgiveness given for the reconciliation of peace. The wine is an exhortation to work with fervent spirit. His beast of burden is the flesh in which he deigned to come to us. To be placed on the beast of burden is to believe in Christ's incarnation. The inn is the church where travelers are refreshed from the journey as they return to the eternal fatherland. The following day is after the resurrection of the Lord. The two denarii are the two commandments of love that the apostles received through the Holy Spirit in order to bring the gospel to others or they are the promise of the present and future life. The innkeeper is the Apostle Paul. End quote. All right, that was a long quote from Augustine. But did you get that? The traveler is Adam, who in turn represents all humanity. The Samaritan is Christ. The binding of the wounds is the restraint of sin. The inn is the church. The innkeeper is the Apostle Paul, and so on. This is not quite the interpretation I grew up hearing. To many of us, Augustine's allegorical reading or spiritual interpretation may seem to be a terrible imposition of extraneous ideas, and many have seen it that way. C.H. Dodd began his book, The Parables of the Kingdom, from 1935, by quoting this same passage from Augustine, and then he noted that, quote, to the ordinary person of intelligence, this mystification must appear quite perverse. End quote. Indeed, most other modern biblical interpreters would agree with Dodd. What has Augustine done? Does he care nothing for the intent of the human author? Doesn't he know what all good modern interpreters know? That a parable has only one main point? And so if you're like me, you may be scandalized by such an interpretation. But what Augustine did with the parable of the Good Samaritan is not unusual. Not unusual for Augustine or for any other pre-modern biblical interpreter. In fact, it's actually par for the course. And the first point I want to make is that this kind of interpretation, let's call it allegorical or spiritual exegesis, 
is in clear continuity with early Christian and even apostolic biblical interpretation. In other words, if we're to ask the question, how did the Apostle Paul and the other apostles interpret their scriptures, the Old Testament? If we ask that question, we will find that their methods are more like Augustine's than they are like ours. Or maybe we should ask it this way. Are our methods more like uh, the Apostle Paul's or not? And I think we'll find that the answer is that Augustine and Paul are a little more similar to each other than they are to us. So, as an example, just consider Paul's interpretation of the Exodus narrative. You know the Exodus story, all right, of uh, the, the Israelites uh, being brought out of Egypt through the sea into the desert and so forth. Well, look up 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting with verse 1. And I'll just read a few verses here to remind us of what Paul says in his interpretation, or at least his application of the Exodus story. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. They were scattered in the wilderness. Verse 6, Now these things occurred as types to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Skip down to verse 11. These things happened to them typologically, and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. All right, did you get that? The passing through the sea is baptism. The spiritual food and drink is, by implication, the Eucharist. And the rock, he says, is Christ. Is this not also an imposition of extraneous ideas onto the Exodus narrative. I wonder what C.H. Dodd would say about Paul's reading and many others like it in the New Testament. So what's going on? And what are we to make of this? If Paul interpreted in this way, can we? Should we? In college, when I learned the discipline of biblical interpretation um, in a class setting, such examples uh, like this one were usually dismissed in, in the following sort of way. The apostles were inspired and thus divinely enabled to make these specific connections in their interpretations. So, yeah, for Paul, the rock is Christ. Or for Peter, the flood water is baptism. You know, for all of these New Testament writers, the serpent is Satan. Hagar is Mount Sinai, the ox is a church minister, and on and on, just to go through, call to mind a few New Testament interpretations of the Old. Because the, the, the point is, because the apostles were inspired, I remember hearing, 
they could make all kinds of crazy connections and otherwise illegitimate interpretations. Now, it wasn't quite put that way, but that was the gist of it, okay? They could do that. We cannot and should not do that kind of biblical interpretation. This, however, is not the way any early Christians understood what was going on. The apostles and the New Testament writers were not interpreting the Bible in a way that was uniquely theirs and forbidden to other Christians or later Christians. No, they were modeling the proper reading and interpretation of the Old Testament. In fact, to their minds, they were simply following the lead of Jesus, who taught them how to read the scriptures. In Luke Acts, you recall Jesus spends the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension instructing his disciples. And you get the impression from Luke chapter 24 that much of that time appears to be Jesus giving lessons in biblical interpretation. So, you know, turn to Luke 24 and listen to these verses. Um, this is Jesus first um, walking with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus on Resurrection Day. <clears throat> he said to them, verse 25 of Luke 24, he said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then skip down to verse 32. Those two disciples asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So they talk about how Jesus opened the scriptures to them to show them that these things about Jesus are there in the Old Testament. Verse 44, now after Jesus has appeared to all of his disciples, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That is to say, the whole Old Testament canon, okay? The law, the prophets, and the writings. And then verse 45, it says, he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Again, what are they to understand from the scriptures? That they are pointing to and about Christ. So Jesus opened the scriptures, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's what he taught them, what is written about himself, Christ, in the law, prophets, and psalms. He taught them that the entire Old Testament is about the Messiah, and he opened their eyes to that. In other words, he taught them to read the Old Testament Christologically. So now return to Paul. When Paul looks at the Exodus narrative and sees it pointing to baptism, Eucharist, and to Christ himself, he is reading the Old Testament Christologically and doing precisely what Jesus taught his disciples to do. What the apostles and New Testament writers model is what Jesus himself modeled in his interpretations of Scripture. So, in following that apostolic model, we follow Jesus' model. As Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, that goes for a lot of things, and I'm arguing here it goes also for scriptural exegesis, biblical interpretation. 
One more example here of, of modern distaste for the pre-modern methods um, comes from a, a great book by Richard Longnecker on biblical exegesis in the apostolic period. After describing Jewish methods of exegesis that you find within the New Testament, Longenecker thinks we should not reproduce, quote, the Jewish manner of argumentation that's exemplified in the New Testament use of the old. So he says, yeah, we see the apostles doing that. We shouldn't do it. Well, the church fathers thought differently. They assumed that Jesus taught his disciples the correct hermeneutical method there in Luke 24, and that this is a model for the church. And so many modern interpreters have begun in recent years and decades to recognize the importance and contribution of pre-modern exegesis. I like the way Peter Lightheart puts it in his book called Deep Exegesis. Quote, the apostles are not employing some bizarre form of sacred hermeneutics when they find Christology and ecclesiology around every corner of the Old Testament. They are giving us pointers to the nature of reading itself, clues to the meaning of meaning, the functions of language, and the proper modes of interpretation. End quote. Apostolic exegesis is then a model for us not something crazy to avoid. All right, so return with me to Augustine um, in his interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. First, it should be observed that Augustine did not invent the main contours of this interpretation of that parable. That interpretation goes back to the earliest interpretation of that parable from the second century. Um, all church fathers said that the Samaritan in the parable is Christ. After all, Think about it. If it's a story about rescue and salvation, which it is, and the Samaritan is the hero or the savior in the story, then you get it. Who's the Samaritan? Christ. Once that central point is recognized, once the Samaritan is identified as Christ, the other details all flow from it. And that is the standard patristic and medieval interpretation of that parable. And the instruction at the end go and do likewise, still makes sense, right? To the, to the half-dead ones out there, the sinners, like us, if we're in that position of the man who um, was beaten on the road, go and do likewise could mean be rescued by the loving Savior. Otherwise, it could be just a general exhortation for us to imitate Christ, the Samaritan, and to go and rescue others in his name. Also, let me add that the true meaning is not bound to or limited by human authorial intent, or more precisely, I should say, our hypothesis regarding that intent. In other words, a true interpretation is not necessarily the only true meaning. For Augustine, if an interpretation, if, if an interpretation of a scripture says something doctrinally true, and it abides within the rule of faith, the parameters of orthodoxy, and if that interpretation promotes the love of God and neighbor, then authorial intent, especially if it cannot be easily determined, which is the case uh, many times, that sort of human authorial intent becomes a subordinate matter. It's important, but it's subordinate. 
I also wouldn't say that Augustine is totally unconcerned with authorial intent. In other words, is what he does with the parable totally out of bounds? What can we say about the author's intent, that is Jesus' own intent with this parable? Well, think about it. The very genre of narrative, of parable, invites the hearer to interpret with some imagination. The question that he was asked, who is my neighbor, you know, in light of the, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? Jesus could have said, everyone, even the person you normally wouldn't associate with. Period. End of story. But instead, Jesus replied with a story, a parable, a fairly ambiguous answer. In fact, the question that the love command raises is, whom should I love as a neighbor? But Jesus' answer implies the question instead, by whom should I be loved? You notice that? The neighbor in the parable, and with the closing question, the neighbor is not the object of love, but the one showing love to the needy. So it makes you, just the story, the way Jesus responds to the question alone, that makes you think or wonder what's going on here. In other words, the human author's intent is, in fact, to provide a multi-layered metaphor. Besides, when it comes to parables, we know from other passages that Jesus himself engaged in such imaginative, or if we want to call it allegorical, interpretation of his own parables, as is shown following the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, and its parallel in, Mark, in Matthew 13, and of the wheat and tares, also in Matthew 13. Significantly, he seems to invite his hearers to do the same, right? This uh, seed that fell on this ground is that. Fell on this other kind of ground, it's that, right? And so forth. The wheat is this. The, the tares represent that. Um, so it's all, all those details and symbolism, it seems like, are meant to be in the parables, before Jesus gives his extended allegorical interpretation of the parable of the sower, he says in Mark 4, verse 13, Do you not know this parable? And how will you know or understand all the parables? In other words, based on this statement, you can see the possibility of similar principles of interpretation at work in, as Jesus says, all the parables. After the same interpretation by Jesus, then he goes on to say in Mark 4, verse 22, for nothing is hidden except that it might be made manifest. So the parables do contain hidden gems, which Jesus went on, some of which he went on to explain to his disciples. So when Augustine comes along and claims that the individual elements of this parable represent certain discrete things, He's simply following Jesus' lead. I mean, we may um, quibble with what he interprets them to be, but to come to the parable of the Good Samaritan and take this detail to mean that is doing just what Jesus did. So the point again here is we are to follow Jesus' model of biblical interpretation. Well, what is that model? How should we describe this way of reading? Well, let me try to... Uh, summarize it and just give the, the heart of the matter here, the kernel. It is a twofold interpretation. 
And we see it clearly in the New Testament readings of the Old, twofold, literal and spiritual. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, and in two other places, the letter and the spirit. So first, the letter or literal sense is the historical sense, the story or the history itself, what scripture reports or says on the most basic level. Second, the spirit, the spiritual sense, is the mystical meaning that lies hidden beneath the literal sense, which the literal sense points to and which spiritual interpretation is meant to uncover. And that spiritual reading is, above all, Christological. Now, often the spirit that raises a lot of questions, I'm sure, but let me just address a few things. Often the spiritual meaning is right there on the surface in the literal sense. Okay, For example, most of what the New Testament says about uh, Jesus, obviously, is already Christological interpretation. You don't have to work very hard to find Christ in the New Testament. All right. So if the point is of, of scriptures to point us to Christ, the New Testament does that fairly basically on the most basic uh, literal level. Um, but spiritual interpretation can unfold in a number of ways. For there may be many embedded meanings and truths to apply. Medieval interpreters usually thought of the spiritual sense as opening up in three ways. And it's not that every scripture has to have all three of these levels to it, and it's not also that it's only these three. But these three kind of crystallized and standardized as a good way to think about the spiritual sense. So again, you've got the, the literal and the spiritual. Now take that second point, spiritual, and here are the three, you might say, subpoints of it. A spiritual reading is, first of all, doctrinal. So it shows us what to believe, and it corresponds to the virtue of faith. So when we go to Scripture, we ask, what does this teach us to believe about whatever it's talking about, and ultimately about Christ, all right? What uh, do we learn of the faith here? Second, the spiritual sense is moral. Um, it, scripture shows us what to do, and that corresponds to the virtue of love. So we should ask with every scripture, what would God have us do? Okay, And ultimately, what does it look like to be conformed to the image of Christ in our lives? And then third, the third level of the spiritual meaning is eschatological. And it shows us uh, scripture shows us what to anticipate, what to look forward to, and that corresponds, of course, to the virtue of hope. So what does this teach us about God's goal for humanity, for his, for his people, and for creation in general? So you take the, the literal sense, and then you take those three spiritual senses, and you have the four senses or meanings of Scripture, a fourfold interpretation which has been uh, called the quadriga. Um, a strange word there, I won't get into the history of that, but if you see that word quadriga um, in biblical interpretation, that's what it's talking about, this fourfold interpretation of Scripture. 
Now, in modern times, especially among scholars, as I say, Christian and non-Christian alike, the Bible became less a living word than it did a dead letter. The idea is that because we know the Bible was not written to us, then it's not really for us either, is the more modern assumption. So modern readers tend to associate the meaning of any passage of Scripture only with what its human author intended and could have known. That is, Scripture means nothing other than what its human author meant. All right? That's the modern way. And it focuses solely on what I'm calling here the literal sense and human authorial intent. So modernity tended to cast aside spiritual interpretations that are not evident on the plainest level of the text. So that has a lot of implications. Uh, mainly, the Old Testament books are not Christological, right? So the modern uh, critical view of the Old Testament books is that these are not about Christ. Well, as moderns, I can also say we tend to approach Scripture with doubt in a way that pre-moderns did not. We also tend to think that an interpreter of Scripture should be completely neutral and not come to Scripture with any previous doctrinal commitments. That's an Enlightenment principle that we've inherited over the last 250 years plus. So the Bible became, in modern times, especially among scholars, more a historical artifact to be taken apart and analyzed. So that's the difference, I would say, between the Word of God being, on the one hand, living and active, and on the other hand, dead and passive. Um, I would compare it, uh, I won't take the analogy uh, too far, but I would compare it to the things you can learn about another body. And the way, let's say, a, a scientist would study a cadaver, um, contrast that with the way a lover would study his uh, beloved on, let's say, the honeymoon or something, okay? Um, you've got both ways that actually learn a lot about the human body, but one of those is treating that body as a scientific object to be analyzed. The other is treating that body in a way that is conducive to love and relationship and mutuality and so forth, okay? So it's not a perfect analogy there, but uh, my point is, yeah, you can learn a lot about the Bible through a modern historical critical understanding that only pays attention to the literal sense, all right? No doubt, you can learn a lot about it. Um, but if that's as far as it goes, you're missing a whole lot there. And so what I'm advocating here is taking the best of both approaches to say, yeah, you learn a lot through the scientific uh, scholarly approach to Scripture. You don't want to neglect that. If you do, you're going to miss quite a lot in Scripture. But that cannot be where it stops. It must go on to these other and unfold into spiritual interpretations that really are the goal, the end, the proper end 
of Scripture. Because if it doesn't point us to Christ, then it's not Scripture for us. And it's hard to know exactly what it is uh, for a Christian reader. Now, the worry, of course, from moderns, and this is why you had this extreme uh, reaction, is the uh, allegory or spiritual interpretations run amok. So if you don't have any controls on the spiritual interpretation of Scripture, then anyone can read anything into Scripture. And of course, sometimes that was done uh, throughout the history of the church, but that was not the intent. So we should seek a balance there instead of saying that all spiritual interpretations that go beyond human authorial intent are somehow illegitimate by definition. That's an overreaction, all right? So seek the balance there, because you can find interpreters on both sides that have overstepped their appropriate bounds. We can call up all kinds of examples of um, allegory or spiritual interpretations run amok. We can also call up um, and um, remind ourselves of historical critical methodologies that run just as far the other direction into speculation and things that are un unhelpful and not even necessarily true. So it, my book does that. So if you're interested in those sorts of examples, um, there's a little bit of that in there. But let me just say here that spiritual readings were always meant to have controls on them. And let me mention very quickly uh, what those controls um, are. First of all, the literal sense itself um, limits interpretation. So it must have, whatever your spiritual interpretation is, it must have some sort of relationship to what the text actually says. In other words, before you start reading between the lines, you should read the lines themselves and see what is said there. Okay, your spiritual interpretation should not somehow contradict what's being said there. Also, what uh, is called the analogy of Scripture is another control. That is, take the whole of Scripture, and you're, we're assuming a fundamental unity of all Scripture here, but take the whole of Scripture as a starting point. Okay, um, This is often said um, something like, um, don't um, interpret Scripture in a way that openly contradicts another clearer passage of Scripture. All right, so if you have two passages that seem to contradict each other, use the clearer passage as a lens for, um, or passages as a, as lens for interpreting the more obscure passages. As Thomas Aquinas said it, basically don't teach from the spiritual sense what is not taught elsewhere in the literal sense. All right, in, in other words, don't use allegory to prove a new doctrine or a doctrine that you can't find clearly somewhere else in Scripture. Use allegory to illustrate the doctrine, perhaps, okay? And also the what's sometimes called the analogy of the faith or the rule of faith. That is, biblical interpretation is regulated by the historic Christian tradition, and that's why it's so important to read Scripture in and with the historic Christian tradition. And that will rule, all of these controls then coming together will rule out a lot of what I would call a little more extreme allegorical or uh, dubious allegorical interpretations. Um, these controls obviously assume that an interpreter is skilled. 
That is, uh, that an interpreter is someone who knows Scripture and can use other Scriptures. That an interpreter is someone who knows not only the whole of Scripture, but also has a very clear and orthodox understanding of the faith. So, um, yeah, much attention should be given to the interpretation of Scripture. It's not uh, allegory, spiritual interpretations are not uh, for a novice to dive into. Um, I can also give examples of the balance, um, but I'll probably have to do that another time. I don't want this session just to, to keep on going. Again, I'll just maybe plug the book there and say that, especially in the final chapter, I give some examples of how both the best of um, historical critical interpretation in, in the literal sense ought to be combined with good spiritual interpretations and how that ought to go. Let me just end with a few points that come to my mind when I ask the question, so what? I know that can always be um, an important question to ask, should be asked um, about anything we're talking about theologically. What What's sort of the practical implications of some of this? Well, in all of this, I would say first and foremost, and kind of basically as I um, broaden out the point here, I want to promote in general a hermeneutic of generosity, a hermeneutic of charity when it comes especially to reading pre-modern interpreters, all right? Because when I read something like, and when most of us read something like what I quoted earlier from Augustine, our first um, default reaction is to dismiss it and laugh it off. And like Dodd say, this is just um, you know a terrible thing. Well, that's a hermeneutic of suspicion, right? The hermeneutic of suspicion uh, builds up a straw man looking for the writer's worst point and then exploiting it, right? But the hermeneutic of charity interprets as an act of love for the other. In this case, the other is our Christian ancestors. So it's to do this is to participate in the communion of the saints and to interpret them how we would want to be interpreted. So using the, the, golden, the hermeneutical golden rule there to interpret them charitably and give them the benefit of the doubt. Too many modern readers, too many of us, I think, dismiss pre-modern biblical interpreters, uh, in, interpreters before we seek to understand them. So there's that point. Um, another so what here is just uh, the point about retrieval. Historical perspective and knowing the Christian tradition is important um, for being a good Christian, just like historical perspective in general is important for being a good citizen of um, our republic. Um, it's really important for being a good minister or theologian to know the history of Christian thought and also the history of biblical interpretation. So we want our Christian ancestors to have a seat at the table in other matters, then they should also have a voice when it comes to exegesis. Also, I think this emphasis um, on uh, knowing histor uh, the history of biblical interpretation teaches us or reinforces for us that Scripture is not an end in itself, but it's a means to other ends. It helps us take seriously what's said in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, that Scripture inspired, is its function is to instruct us in doctrine and in morals, right? So that means that no passage of Scripture is irrelevant 
to Christian faith and practice. If you don't see its immediate relevance, then we should ask those, those questions of the text that I talked about from that fourfold method, the, the literal, but also those other three spiritual senses. That's a pretty good way to approach Scripture. So the literal asks, what happened? You know, what's this text actually about? But those spiritual interpretations should lead us to greater faith, love, and hope. So let's always ask of the text, what should we believe based on this? What does it teach us about doctrine? What should we do? What does this teach us about how we should behave and what our love for God and neighbor should look like? And then what should we hope for um, as we interact with this text? So again, I'm promoting here a balance of the literal and the spiritual. Don't get bogged down in questions and debates of historical introduction. Those things can be helpful, but if they're not helpful for the end of Scripture, which is to teach us faith and morals, then we should probably not worry too much about it in a Christian context. There's a place for those questions. Well, let's balance that. Um, as to that balance, I've often heard this advice, and probably at one time or another given it, um, to ministers that their time spent in critical exegesis um, must be supplemented at other times with devotional reading. Now, I don't think that's necessarily bad advice, but I think it assumes a dichotomy there between these two ways of reading Scripture. There's probably a distinction for sure, but these two things are not two different practices. It's like, do you understand what I'm saying? That point about, well, I'm preparing to teach this Bible class. And that reading of Scripture does not um, substitute for my own personal devotional reading. All right? I'm not saying read Scripture less, but I am sort of suggesting that you can double dip. In other words, those need not and probably should not be two completely separate tasks there. In other words, the the close study of Scripture that we're doing to prepare for a Bible class, that ought to um, unfold into spiritual interpretations. We ought to be asking for the sake of the class that we're going to teach and for the sake of our own um, uh, spirituality, we ought to be asking those questions. What is this text? What would, what would it have us believe and do and hope for? And then when we're reading um, for ourselves personally, not to teach someone else, but devotionally or whatever we want to call it, even uh, Lectio Divina, um, the, if we're truly going to understand Scripture, then it helps at least to ask some of those questions that we would ask in any study. Who's saying this? You know, uh, who wrote this? Who are they writing to? Um, what's the literary context here? Those things are going to help us understand what those spiritual applications should be and which ones are legitimate and so forth. So I think that this way of reading Scripture should help bring those two things that, even if they're distinct, should not be separated from one another. Finally, I think it's important simply to instill in ourselves and in our churches a love for reading Scripture something I think that is in short supply among Christians these days. 
we need to, again, love to read Scripture, and there are many things that get in the way of that. But one of those is simply, I think, we don't know how to read Scripture. We're reading it perhaps too superficially. We're reading it without sort of the full scope of what Scripture can do and how it can point us to deeper and deeper levels of understanding and being. One of my favorite quotations, and I'll end with this, is from Pope Gregory I the Great in his preface to his very long book on the moral interpretation of the book of Job. He says it this way, quote, The word of God is like a river, both shallow and deep, in which a lamb walks and an elephant swims. Right? End quote. So scripture is... Um, like a river, you can see a, a lamb. It's shallow enough for a lamb to wade in there with no danger. But in other places, just beyond that, it's deep enough for an elephant to swim. In other words, there's something there for everyone. The beginner who's just coming to Scripture, there's something there that will be edifying and upbuilding and encouraging and instructive for that person. For those who have spent a lifetime studying scripture. Scripture is not something that you can you know, read it once or twice and then say, well, I'm done with it. I, I, I've got it now. No, it's deep enough for uh, an elephant to swim and still not touch the bottom. There's always something there for us. So the word of God is like a river, both shallow and deep, in which a lamb walks and an elephant swims. Thank you.